Section A of Liber Amoris, or the New Pygmalion, by William Hazlitt, from the advertisement to the end of reconciliation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Duncan Liber Amoris by William Hazlitt Section A Advertisement The circumstances, an outline of which is given in these pages, happened a very short time ago to a native of North Britain, who left his own country early in life, in consequence of political animosities and an ill-advised connection in marriage. It was some years after that that he formed the fatal attachment which is the subject of the following narrative. The whole was transcribed very carefully with his own hand, a little before he set out for the continent in hopes of benefiting by a change of scene, but he died soon after in the Netherlands, it is supposed of disappointment preying on a sickly frame and a morbid state of mind. It was his wish that what had been his strongest feeling while living should be preserved in this shape when he was no more. It has been suggested to the friend into whose hands the manuscript was entrusted that many things, particularly in the conversations in the first part, either childish or redundant, might have been omitted but a promise was given that not a word should be altered, and the pledge was held sacred. The names and circumstances are so far disguised, it is presumed, as to prevent any consequences resulting from the publication, farther than the amusement and sympathy of the reader. The Picture H. Oh, is it you? I had something to show you. I've got a picture here. Do you know anyone it's like? S. No, sir. H. Don't you think it like yourself? S. No. It's much handsomer than I can pretend to be. H. That's because you don't see yourself with the same eyes that others do. I don't think it handsomer, and the expression is hardly so fine as yours sometimes is. S. Now you flatter me. Besides, the complexion is fair, and mine is dark. H. Thine is pale and beautiful, my love, not dark. But if your colour were a little heightened, and you wore the same dress, and your hair were let down over your shoulders, as it is here, it might be taken for a picture of you. Look here. Only see how like it is. The forehead is like, with that little obstinate protrusion in the middle, the eyebrows are like, the eyes are just like yours, when you look up and say, No, never. S. What then? Do I always say, No, never, when I look up? H. I don't know about that. I've never heard you say so but once. But that was once too often for my peace. It was when you told me you could never be mine. Ah! If you are never to be mine, I shall not long be myself. I cannot go on as I am. My faculties leave me, 
I think of nothing. I have no feeling for anything but thee. Thy sweet image has taken possession of me, haunts me, and will drive me to distraction. Yet I almost wish to go mad for thy sake. For then I might fancy that I had thy love in return, which I cannot live without. S. Do not, I beg, talk in that manner, but tell me what this is a picture of. H. I hardly know, but it's a very small and delicate copy, painted in oil on a gold ground, of some fine old Italian picture, Guido's or Raphael's, but I think Raphael's. Some say it's a Madonna, others call it a Magdalene, and say you may distinguish the tear upon the cheek, though no tear is there. But it seems to me more like Raphael's Saint Cecilia, with looks commercing with the skies than anything else. See, Sarah, how beautiful it is. Ah, dear girl, these are the ideas I have cherished in my heart and in my brain, and I never found anything to realize them on earth till I met with thee, my love. While thou didst seem sensible to my kindness, I was but too happy. But now thou hast cruelly cast me off. Yes, you have no reason to say so. You are the same to me as ever. H. That is nothing. You are to me everything, and I am nothing to you. Is it not too true? S. No. H. Then kiss me, my sweetest. Oh, could you see your face now? your mouth full of suppressed sensibility, your downcast eyes, the soft blush upon that cheek. You would not say the picture is not like because it is too handsome, or because you want complexion. Thou art heavenly fair, my love, like her from whom the picture was taken, the idol of the painter's heart, as thou art of mine. Shall I make a drawing of it, altering the dress a little? to show you how like it is. S. As you please. THE INVITATION H. But I am afraid I tire you with this prosing description of the French character and the abuse of English. You know there is but one subject on which I would ever wish to talk, if you would let me. S. I must say you don't seem to have a very high opinion of this country. H. Yes, it is the place that gave you birth. S. You like the French women better than the English. H. No, though they have finer eyes, talk better, and are better made. But they none of them look like you. I like Italian women. I like the Italian women I have seen much better than the French. They have darker eyes, darker hair, and the accents of their native tongue is much richer and more melodious. But I will give you a better account of them when I come back from Italy, if you would like to hear it. S. I should, much. It is for that that I have sometimes had a wish for travelling abroad, to understand something of the manners and characters of different people. H. My sweet girl. I will give you the best account I can, unless you would rather go and judge for yourself. Yes, I cannot. H. Yes, you shall go with me, and you shall go with honour. You know what I mean. 
S. You know it's not in your power to take me so. H. But it soon may. If you would consent to bear me company, I would swear never to think of an Italian woman while I am abroad, nor of an English one after I return home. Thou art to me more than thy whole sex. S. I require no such sacrifices. H. Is that what you thought I meant by sacrifices last night? But sacrifices are no sacrifices when they are repaid a thousandfold. S. I have no way of doing it. H. You have not the will. S. I must go now. H. Stay and hear me a little. I shall soon be where I can no longer hear thy voice, far distant from her I love, to see what a change of climate and bright skies will do for a sad heart. I shall perhaps see thee no more, but I shall still think of thee, the same as ever. I shall say to myself, where is she now? What is she doing? But I shall hardly wish you to think of me, unless you could do so in more favourably than I am afraid you will. Ah, dearest creature, I shall be far distant from you, as you once said of another, but you will not think of me as of him with the sincerest affection. The smallest share of thy tenderness would make me blessed. Couldst thou ever love me as thou didst him, I should feel like a god. My face would change to a different expression. My whole form would undergo alteration. I was getting well. I was growing young in the sweet proofs of your friendship. You see how I droop and wither under your displeasure. Thou art divine, my love, and thou canst make me either more or less than mortal. Indeed, I am thy creature, thy slave. I only wish to live for your sake. I would gladly die for you. Yes, that would give me no pleasure, but indeed you greatly overrate my power. H. Your power over me is that of a sovereign grace and beauty. When I am near thee, Nothing can harm me. Thou art an angel of light, shadowing me in thy softness. But when I let go thy hand, I stagger on a precipice. Out of thy sight the world is dark to me and comfortless. There is no breathing out of this house. The air of Italy will stifle me. Go with me, and lighten it. I can know no pleasure away from thee. But I will come again, my love, and it were ten thousand miles. The Message S. Mrs. E. has called for the book, sir. H. Oh, it's there. Let her wait a minute or two. I see this is a busy day with you. How beautiful your arms look in those short sleeves. S. I don't like to wear them. H. Then it is because you are merciful and would spare the frail mortals who might die with gazing. S. I have no power to kill. H. You have. You have. Your charms are irresistible, as your will is inexorable. I wish I could see you always thus, but I would have no one else see you so. I am jealous of all eyes but my own. I should almost like you to wear a veil, and to be muffled up from head to foot. But even if you were, 
and not a glimpse of you could be seen, it would be to no purpose. You would only have to move, and you would be admired as the most graceful creature in the world. You smile. Well, if you were to be won by fine speeches, S. You could supply them. H. It is, however, no laughing matter with me. Thy beauty kills me daily. I shall think of nothing but thy charms till the last word trembles from my tongue. That will be thy name, my love, the name of my infelice. You will live by that name, you rogue, fifty years after you're dead. Don't you thank me for that? S. I have no such ambition, sir. But Mrs. E. is waiting. H. She is not in love like me. You look so handsome today, I cannot let you go. You've got colour. S. But you say I look best when I'm pale. H. When you are pale, I think so. But when you have colour, I then think you are still more beautiful. It's you that I admire, and whatever you are, I like best. I like you as Miss L. I should like you still more as Mrs. Blank. I once thought you were half inclined to be a prude, and I admired you as a pensive nun, devout and pure. I now think you're more than half a coquette, and I like you for your roguery. The truth is, I'm in love with you, my angel, and whatever you are is to me the perfection of thy sex. I care not what thou art, while thou still thyself. Smile but so, and turn my heart to what shape you please. Yes, I'm afraid, sir, Mrs. E. will think you've forgotten her. H. I had, my charmer, but go, and make her a sweet apology, all graceful as thou art. One kiss. Ah! Ought I not to think myself the happiest of men? The flagellet. H. Where have you been, my love? S. I've been down to my aunt, sir. H. And I hope she's been giving you good advice. S. I didn't go to her to ask her opinion about anything. H. And yet you seem anxious and agitated. You appear pale and dejected, as if your refusal of me has touched your own breast with pity. Cruel girl! You look at this moment heavenly soft, saint-like, or resemble some graceful marble statue in the moon's pale ray. Sadness only heightens the elegance of your features. How can I escape from you, when every new occasion, even your cruelty and scorn, brings out some new charm? Nay, your rejection of me, by the way in which you do it, is only a new link added to my chain. Raise those downcast eyes, bend as if an angel stooped, and kiss me. Ah, enchanting little trembler, if such is thy sweetness where thou dost not love, what must thy love have been? I cannot think how any man, having the heart of one, could go and leave it. S. No one did, that I know of. H. Yes. You told me yourself he left you, though he liked you, and though he knew 
O gracious God, that you loved him. He left you, because the pride of birth would not permit a union. For myself, I leave a throne to ascend to the heaven of your charms. I live but for thee, here. I only wish to live again, to pass all eternity with thee. But even in another world, I suppose you would turn from me to seek him out who scorned you here. S. If the proud scorn us here, in that place we shall all be equal. H. Do not look so, do not talk so, unless you would drive me mad. I could worship you at this moment. Can I witness such perfection, and bear to think that I have lost you for ever? Oh, let me hope. You see you can mould me as you like. You can lead me by the hand like a little child, and with you my way would be like a little child's. You could strew flowers in my path, and pour new life and hope into me. I should then indeed hail the return of spring with joy, could I indulge the faintest hope. Would you but let me try to please you? S. Nothing can alter my resolution, sir. H. Will you go and leave me so? S. It's late, and my father will be getting impatient at my stopping so long. H. You know he has nothing to fear for you. It is poor I that am alone in danger. But I wanted to ask about buying you a flageolet. Could I see that which you have? If it is a pretty one, it would be hardly worth a while. But if it isn't, I thought of bespeaking an ivory one for you. Can't you bring up your own to show me? S. Not tonight, sir. H. I wish you could. S. I cannot, but I will in the morning. H. Whatever you determine, I must submit to. Good night, and bless thee. The next morning S. brought up the tea-kettle as usual, and looking toward the tea-tray she said, Oh, I see my sister has forgot the teapot. It was not there, sure enough. And tripping downstairs, she came up in a minute, with the teapot in one hand and the flageolet in the other, balanced so sweetly and gracefully. It would have been awkward to have brought up the flageolet in the tea-tray, and she could not have well gone down again on purpose to fetch it. Something, therefore, was to be omitted as an excuse. Exquisite witch! But do I love her the less dearly for it? I cannot. THE CONFESSION H. You say you cannot love. Is there not a prior attachment in the case? Was there anyone else that you did like? S. Yes, there was another. H. Ah! I thought as much. It was long ago, then. S. It is two years, sir. H. And has time made no alteration, or do you still see him sometimes? S. No, sir. But he is one to whom I feel the sincerest affection. 
and ever shall, though he is far distant. H. And did he return your regard? S. I had every reason to think so. H. What then broke off your intimacy? S. It was the pride of birth, sir, that would not permit him to think of a union. H. Was he a young man of rank, then? S. His connections were high. H. Did he never attempt to persuade you to any other step? S. No, he had too great a regard for me. H. Tell me, my angel, how was it? Was he so very handsome, or was it the fineness of his manners? It was more his manner, but I can't tell you how it was. It was chiefly my own fault. I was foolish to suppose he could ever think seriously of me. But he used to make me read with him, and I used to be with him a good deal, though not much neither, and I found my affections entangled before I was aware of it. H. And did your mother and family know of it? S. No, I have never told any one but you, nor I should not have mentioned it now, but I thought it might give you some satisfaction. H. Why did he go at last? S. We thought it better to part. H. And do you correspond? S. No, sir, but perhaps I may see him again some time or other, though it will only be in the way of friendship. H. My God, what a heart is thine to live for years upon that bare hope. S. I did not wish to live always, sir. I wished to die for a long time after, till I thought it not right. And since then I have endeavoured to be as resigned as I can. H. And do you think the impression will never wear out? S. Not if I can judge from my feelings hitherto. It's now some time since, and I find no difference. H. May God for ever bless you. How can I thank you for your condescension in letting me know your sweet sentiments? You've changed my esteem into adoration. Never can I harbour a thought of ill in thee again. Indeed, sir, I wish for your good opinion and your friendship. H. And can you return them? S. Yes. H. And nothing more? S. No, sir. H. You are an angel, and I will spend my life if you will let me in paying you the homage that my heart feels toward you. The Quarrel H. You are angry with me. S. Have I not reason? 8. For I would give the world to believe my suspicions unjust. But, oh, my God, after what I have thought of you, and felt toward you, as little less than an angel, to have but a doubt cross my mind for an instant that you were, what I dare not name, a common lodging-house decoy, a kissing convenience that your lips were as common as the stairs. S. Let me go, sir. H. Nay, prove to me that you are not so, and I will fall down and worship you. 
you were the only creature that ever seemed to love me, and to have my hopes and all my fondness for you thus turned to a mockery is too much. Tell me, why have you deceived me and singled me out as your victim? S. I never have, sir. I always said I could not love. H. There is a difference between love and making me a laughing-stock. Yet what else could be the meaning of your little sister's running out to you, saying, He thought I didn't see him, when I had followed you into the other room? Is it a joke upon me that I make free with you? Or is not the joke against her sister, unless you make my courtship of you a jest to the whole house? Indeed, I do not well see how you can come and stay with me as you do, by the hour, together, day after day, as openly as you do, unless you give it some such turn with your family, or do you deceive them as well as me? S. I deceive no one, sir, but my sister Betsy was always watching and listening when Mr. M. was courting my eldest sister, till he was obliged to complain of it. H. Well, that I can understand, but not the other. You may remember when your servant Maria looked in and found you sitting on my lap one day, and I was afraid she might tell your mother. You said, You did not care, for you had no secrets from your mother. This seemed to me odd at the time, but I thought no more of it till other things brought it up to my mind. Am I to suppose, then, that you are acting a part, a vile part, all this time, and that you come up here and stay as long as I like, and that you sit on my knee and put your arms round my neck, and feed me with kisses, and let me take other liberties with you, and that for a year together, and that you do all this not out of love, or liking, or regard, but go through your regular task like some young witch without one natural feeling, to show your cleverness, and to get a few presents out of me, and to go down into the kitchen and make a fine laugh of it. There is something monstrous in it that I cannot believe of you. S. Sir, you have no right to harass my feelings in the manner you do. I have never made a jest of you to any one, but always felt and expressed the greatest esteem for you. You have no ground for complaint in my conduct, and I cannot help what Betsy or others do. I have always been consistent from the first. I told you my regard could amount to no more than friendship. H. Nay, Sarah, it was more than half a year before I knew there was an insurmountable obstacle in the way. You say your regard was merely friendship, and that you are sorry I have ever felt anything more for you. Yet, the first time I ever asked you, you let me kiss you. The first time I ever saw you, as you went out of the room, you turned full round at the door with that inimitable grace with which you do everything, and fixed your eyes full on me as much to say, Is he caught? The very week you sat on my knee, twined your arms around me, caressed me with every mark of tenderness, consistent with modesty and I have not got much farther since. Now, if you did all this with me, a perfect stranger to you, and without any particular liking to me, must I not conclude you do so as a matter of course with every one? Or, if you do not do so with others, it was because you took a liking to me, for some reason or other. 
S. It was gratitude, sir, for different obligations. H. If you mean by obligations the presents I made you, I had given you none the first day I came. You do not consider yourself obliged to everyone who asks you for a kiss. S. No, sir. H. I should not have thought anything of it in any one but you, but you seem so reserved and modest, so soft, so timid, you spoke so low, and looked so innocent. I thought it impossible you could deceive me. Whatever favours you granted must proceed from pure regard. No betrothed virgin ever gave the object of her choice kisses, caresses more modest or more bewitching than those you have given me a thousand and a thousand times. Could I have thought that I should ever live to believe them as inhuman mockery of one who had the sincerest regard for you? Do you think they will not now turn to rank poison in my veins and kill me, soul and body? You say it is friendship. But if this is friendship, I'll forswear love. Ah, Sarah, it must be something more or less than friendship. If your caresses are sincere, they show fondness. If they are not, I must be more than indifferent to you. Indeed, you once let some words drop, as if I were out of the question in such matters. You could trifle with me with impunity. Yet you complain at other times that no one ever took such liberties with you as I have done. I remember once in particular your saying, as you went out of the door in anger, I had an attachment before, but that person never attempted anything of the kind. Good God! How did I dwell on that word before, thinking it implied an attachment to me also? But you have since disclaimed any such meaning. You say you've never professed more than esteem, yet once, when you were sitting in your old place on my knee, embracing and fondly embraced, and I asked you if you could not love, you made answer I could easily say so, whether I did or not, you should judge by my actions. And another time, when we were in the same posture, and I reproached you with indifference, you replied in these words, do I seem indifferent? Was I to blame after this to indulge my passion for the loveliest of her sex? Or what can I think? S. I'm no prude, sir. H. And yet you might be taken for one. So your mother said, it was hard, it was hard if you might not indulge in a little levity. She has strange notions of levity, but levity, my dear, is quite out of character in you. Your ordinary walk is as if you were performing some religious ceremony. You come up to my table every morning, when you merely bring the tea-things as if you were advancing to the altar. You move in a minuet time. You measure every step as if you were afraid of offending in the smallest things. I never hear your approach on the stairs, but by a sort of hushed silence. When you enter the room, the graces wait on you, and love waves around your person in gentle undulations, breathing balm into the soul. By heavens, you are an angel. You look like one at this instant. Do I not adore you, and have I merited this in return? S. 
I have repeatedly answered that question. You sit and fancy things out of your own head, and then lay them on my charge. There is not a word of truth in your suspicions. H. Did I not overhear the conversation downstairs last night, to which you were a party? Shall I repeat it? S. I had rather not hear it. H. Or what am I to think of this story of the footman? S. It is false, sir. I never did anything of the sort. H. Nay, when I told your mother I wish she wouldn't blank, as I heard she did, she said, Oh, there's nothing in that, for Sarah very often blank. And your doing so before company is only a trifle addition to the sport. S. I'll call my mother, sir, and she shall contradict you. H. Then she'll contradict herself. Did you not boast you were very persevering in your resistance to gay young men, and you had been several times obliged to ring the bell? Did you always ring it, or did you get into these dilemmas that made it necessary merely by the demureness of your looks and your ways? Or had nothing else passed? Or have you two characters, one that you palm off on me, and another, your natural one, that you resume when you get out of the room, like an actress who throws aside her artificial part behind the scenes? Did you not, when I was courting you on the staircase the first night, Mrs. C. came, beg me to desist, for if the new lodger heard us, he'd take you for a like character? Was that all? Were you only afraid of being taken for a light character? Oh, Sarah! S. I'll stay and hear this no longer. H. Yes, one word more. Did you not love another? S. Yes, and ever shall, most sincerely. H. Then that is my only hope. If you could feel this sentiment for him, you cannot be what you seem to me of late. But there is another thing I had to say to you. Be what you will. I love you to distraction. You are the only woman that ever made me think she loved me. And that feeling was so new to me, and so delicious, that it will never from my heart. Thou art to me a little tender flower, blooming in the wilderness of my life. And though thou shouldst turn out a weed, I'll not fling thee from me while well, I can help it. Wert thou all that I dread to think? Wert thou a wretched wanderer in the street, covered with rags, disease, and infamy? I clasp thee to my bosom, and live and die with thee. My love, kiss me. Thou little sorceress. Yes, never. H. Then go. But remember, I cannot live without you nor I will not. THE RECONCILIATION H. Have I then lost your friendship? S. Nothing tends more to alienate a friendship than insult. H. The words I uttered hurt me more than they did you. S. It was not words merely, but actions as well. H. Nothing I can say or do can ever alter my fondness for you. Ah, Sarah, I'm unworthy of your love, 
I hardly dare ask for your pity, but, oh, save me, save me from your scorn. I cannot bear it. It withers me like lightning. S. I bear no malice, sir. But my brother, who would scorn to tell a lie for his sister, can bear witness for me that there was no truth in what you were told. H. I believe it. Well, there is no truth in woman. It's enough for me to know that you do not return my regard. It would be too much for me to think that you didn't deserve it. But cannot you forgive the agony of the moment? Yes, I can forgive, but it's not easy to forget some things. H. Nay, my sweet Sarah, frown if you will, I can bear your resentment for my ill behaviour. It's only your scorn and indifference that harrow up my soul. But I was going to ask if you had been engaged to be married to any one and the day was fixed, and he had heard what I did, whether he could have felt any true regard for the character of his bride, his wife, if he had not been hurt and alarmed as I was. Yes. I believe actual contracts of marriage have sometimes been broken off by unjust suspicions. H. Or had it been your old friend, what do you think he would have said in my case? S. He would never have listened to anything of the sort. H. He had greater reasons for confidence than I have. But it is your repeated cruel rejection of me that drives me almost to madness. Tell me, love, is there not, besides your attachment to him, a repugnance to me? S. No, none whatever. H. I fear there is an original dislike which no efforts of mine can overcome. Yes, it's not you, it's my feelings with respect to another, which are unalterable. H. And yet you have no hope of ever being his. And yet you accuse me of being romantic in my sentiments. Yes, I have indeed long ceased to hope, but yet sometimes I hope against hope. H. My love. Were it in my power, thy hopes would be fulfilled to-morrow. Next to my own, there is nothing that could give me so much satisfaction as to see thine realised. Do I not love thee when I can feel such interest in thy love for another? It was that which first wedded my very soul to you. I would give worlds for a share in a heart so rich in pure affection. S. And yet I did not tell you of the circumstance to raise myself in your opinion. H. You are a sublime little thing, and yet you have no prospects there. I cannot help thinking. The best would be to do as I have said. S. I would never marry a man I did not love beyond all the world. H. I should be satisfied with less than that, with the love, or regard, or whatever you call it, you have shown me before marriage. If that has only been sincere, you would hardly like me less afterwards. S. Endearments would, I should think, increase regard where there was love beforehand, but that is not exactly my case. H. But I think you would be happier than you are at present. You take pleasure in my conversation. You say you have an esteem for me, and it is upon this after the honeymoon, that marriage chiefly turns. Yes, 
Do you think there is no pleasure in a single life? H. Do you mean on account of its liberty? S. No, but I feel that forced duty is no duty. I have high ideas of the marriage state. H. Higher than that of the maiden state. S. I understand you, sir. H. I meant nothing, but you have sometimes spoken of any serious attachment as a tie upon you. It is not that you prefer flirting with gay young men to become a mere dull domestic wife. S. You've no right to throw out such insinuations, for though I am but a tradesman's daughter, I have a nice sense of honour as any one can have. H. Talk of a tradesman's daughter. You'd ennoble any family, thou glorious girl, by true nobility of mind. Yes. Oh, sir, you flatter me. I know my own inferiority to most. H. To none. There is no one above thee, man nor woman either. You are above your situation, which is not fit for you. S. I am contented with my lot, and I do my duty as cheerfully as I can. H. Have you not told me your spirits grow worse every year? S. Not on that account, but some disappointments are hard to bear up against. H. If you talk about that, you'll unman me. But tell me, my love, I have thought of it as something that might account for some circumstance, that is, as a mere possibility. But tell me, there was not a likeness between me and your old lover that struck at first sight, was there? S. No, sir, none. H. Well, I didn't think it likely there should. S. But there was a likeness. H. To whom? S. To that little image, looking intently on a small bronze figure of Bonaparte on the mantelpiece. H. What? Do you mean to Bonaparte? S. Yes. All but the nose was just like. H. And was his figure the same? S. He was taller. I got up and gave her the image, and told her it was hers by every right that was sacred. She refused to take so valuable a curiosity, and said she would keep it for me. But I pressed it eagerly, and she took it. She immediately came and sat down and put her arm around my neck, and kissed me, and I said, Is it not plain we are the best of friends in the world, since we are always so glad to make it up? And then I added, how odd it was that the god of my idolatry should turn out to be like her idol, and said it was no wonder that the same face which awed the world should conquer the sweetest creature in it. How I loved her at that moment! Is it possible that the wretch who writes this could ever have been so blessed? Heavenly delicious creature! Can I live without her? Ah, oh, no, never, never! What is this world? What asken men to have, now with his love, now in the cold grave, alone, without any company? Let me but see her again. She cannot hate the man who loves her as I do. End of section A of Liber Amoris by William Hazlitt.